Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm so excited for the show to return. It's been a long time. We took a break, a year and a half. We're finally back with episode 100. Man, guys, what a journey to get here. Uh, it, it's a great honor after all these years to have finally uh, gotten to the 100th episode. We have uh, over 15,000 listeners, uh, and I'm so excited for the show to be back up, and I'm so excited for the 100th episode to finally get going. Uh, we got some great interviews uh, today. We have former Vermont Governor Jim Douglas and former Minnesota Congressman Colin Peterson, who we interviewed, their guests on this week's show. Uh, but first, we wanted to look back at the history uh, of politics uh, weekly. Politics Weekly started all the way back in 2018 as a sort of nonpartisan podcast. We, we pride ourselves on having guests from all ends of the political spectrum. Uh, we're not just a Republican show. We're not just a Democratic show. We're a show where anybody can come on um, and you get the news through a certain filter. Uh, you don't get the news uh, always through a conservative filter or a liberal filter. Uh, you get guests from both. And so one week you could be getting a Republican's perspective on the news, and another week you could be getting a Democrat's perspective on the news. Our first episode in 2018 uh, was about uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, Kim Jong-un uh at the time, Donald Trump was president, and President Trump at the time was trying to negotiate a deal with Kim Jong-un, and that was what we talked about uh, on the first episode. Uh, that was uh, the topic. From there on out, we would go on to do a lot of different predictions and a lot of different features uh, and a lot of different things that could engage a lot of listeners. We tried to give listeners kind of their own sort of perspective on a lot of issues. And we were happy that, um, that we were able to inform a lot of viewers as well, um, or a lot of uh, our, our base. Um, eventually, Politics Weekly did take off. We got a number uh, of really big interviews with a lot of different people. Um, one was Laura Loomer. Laura Loomer was a conservative activist, um, and we were fortunate enough to have her on the show. Um, we also had many of the 2020 Democratic candidates for president on our show as well. Uh, here's a piece of our interview with Marianne Williamson, uh, one of the 2020 Democratic candidates for president. I have an entire concentration on uh, the vulnerabilities and the challenges of uh, America's children. Um, that is not part of the <clears throat> Sanders campaign. <clears throat> My Department of Peace is not part of the Sanders campaign. My whole health plan, which has a <clears throat> an integrative approach to health, where uh, the uh, patients are given far more information and access uh, and incentivizing of actual health, uh, well, health creation, not just treatment of sickness, including the fact that uh, our 
uh, insurance companies and, and the Medicare would be covering the cost of the non-allopathic treatments as well as allopathic. So I'm talking about things. He's talking about the things in his campaign he feels he should talk about. And I'm talking about things in my campaign that I feel I should talk about. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the debates. Um, you, were, you made the first two rounds of debates. Uh, you didn't make the last couple. Um, there's a debate coming up in December. Uh, is there any, do you think that there's any path forward for your campaign if you don't make this debate? Well, I, I, I think the question is what happened here. The debates are a TV reality show. That's all they are. Uh, the problem in America is that we're being run and basically for all intents and purposes governed by a corporate aristocracy. The DNC is just a corporate aristocracy within the larger corporate aristocracy. Their function should be to facilitate democracy, not to dictate it. The voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and uh, Nevada did not need the DNC, a private corporation, to come in here and narrow their choices. They're more than capable of doing that themselves. And so this is what this is, is a rebranding of the old-fashioned party bosses who sat in that room and decided who the candidates would be. Now, they did this last time. They put their finger on the, on the scale, and we all know that. And if they had not put their finger on the scale, it would have been either Bill Hillary or Bernie. But I think we all would have felt good about it because we would have known that the people chose and there wouldn't have been a lot of resentment and cynicism and I don't think Trump would be president today. Well, they're doing the same thing this time. This is all just a show. This is a reality TV show. A lot of people are making money. It's, it's the campaign industrial complex. So the point isn't, you know, after my success, and it was success after the second uh, debate, the most Google candidate and so forth, somebody clearly put out the kill order, get rid of her, she can't be on the third debate. And thus the false narrative, I'm a woo-woo lady, I'm a crystal lady, I'm anti-medicine, I'm anti-science, all of that. This is much bigger than me. I'm not a victim. This isn't about me. This is about our democracy here. And it is, um, it is uh, very, very unfortunate that the people of uh, the early primary states were simply not given access. You know, the American people own the airwaves. That's what this should be. It should be mandated time, equal for every candidate. It shouldn't matter whether you're one of the good old boys from the DNC world, and it shouldn't matter if you're the billionaire like Michael Bloomberg who can come in and spend $40 million in the first week. Here's an interview with another guest, Tulsi Gabbard, um, from 2020 when she ran for president. So, um, my first question is, uh, obviously this week, uh, President Trump was acquitted. Um, I know you voted present on that. What are your thoughts now that he's been acquitted? Uh, the thing that I have been warning against has been two primary things. One is that uh, because of how divided our country already is, that this would only further divide our country. And second, that this hyperpartisan process would only increase the likelihood of Trump's reelection. And these two things uh, are unfortunately becoming true. We're seeing how in the wake of the impeachment, Trump is at the highest levels of approval ratings he's seen in his entire administration uh, so far. 
Um, and then my second question is, if you don't win in New Hampshire this Tuesday, is there a path forward for your campaign We're from there? We're flying to South Carolina early Wednesday morning. We're continuing our campaign. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Noel. Thank you. Nice to meet thank you. Thank you. You too. Hi. Eventually, our show grew in popularity, gaining over 15,000 listeners worldwide. The success of Politics Weekly has only continued to transcend over the many years it's been on the air. That's why I'm happy to announce that Politics Weekly will be resuming broadcast every Tuesday as per usual. Make sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new interview. Without further ado, I want to get to our first guest. Jim Douglas served as governor of Vermont from 2003 to 2011. Last year, I got to talk to him about his time as governor. Douglas, a Republican, had to deal a heavy challenge in a mostly Democratic-leaning state, and it was interesting getting to talk to him about how he had to navigate those challenges while working with others. Please sit back and enjoy my interview with former Vermont Governor Jim Douglas. Is the secret to uh, winning that many times as a Republican in a blue state like Vermont? I think a couple of things um, led to that success. One is uh, um, not to be edgy. Um, you can't win in Vermont if you're too far out of the mainstream of, um, of uh, the thinking of Vermonters. So um, moderation and um, um, you know, not, uh, not, not being uh, extreme in, in, in word and deed, I think, is, is key. But secondly, I was proud of the fact that I got around the state a lot so that when the um, media, which were generally of a different uh, bent, um, tried to portray me as uh, something that I wasn't, people could see that I didn't have horns. <laughs> a bad guy after all and and uh, my my adversaries used to make fun of the fact that I uh, traveled around the state so much but I really think it was important uh, to engage in retail politics in a, a state and, and because of our relatively small size that's possible so going into the 2022 midterms uh, obviously Republicans would like to make gains there's right now there's an attempt underway to try and take back the house some Republicans would like to get the Senate back. There are other Republicans that would like to maybe gain a few governorships. Uh, what advice would you give to Republicans going into the next midterms? Well, I think recruitment is key. We saw that during the uh, recent congressional elections where the Republicans made unexpected progress in the U.S. House. And that was largely uh, due to uh, uh, recruiting a more diverse cadre of candidates uh, I've read, so I assume it's true, that uh, every uh, new Republican uh, is either a woman, uh, a minority, a veteran, or some combination of the three. Uh, so I think it's important to uh, continue to, uh, to uh, present to the American people a, 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 a group of candidates who are reflective of the increasing diversity of our country. And it's the uh, congresswoman from right next door to Vermont, at least Stefanik, who uh, was key in, in, in that recruitment effort, and now, of course, she's going to have a key role in, uh, uh, in the House leadership. So I think that's number one. And secondly, um, I've always believed that work works, 
Uh, in other words, the candidates once recruited have to uh, have to work very hard, have to be aggressive, have to get around their districts, um, uh, meet as many people as they possibly can, and and um, uh, show that they are concerned about their hopes and aspirations and priorities. And if we do that, um, given the historical advantage that the out party, uh, the party of, uh, that doesn't hold the White House has in an off year, uh, I think we have a good shot. So going into the 20, uh, or have you talked to Governor Phil Scott? Obviously, for those who don't know, the current governor of Vermont is also a Republican, Phil Scott. Have you given Governor Phil Scott any advice from time to time on how to operate as a Republican in a blue state? Well, uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, people think we talk all the time, but we, we don't talk that much at all. Um, uh, he and I have known each other for many years. Uh, he was in the state senate during my gubernatorial time. Um, he then uh, became our lieutenant governor for six years. Uh, a number of people in his cabinet and on his staff are folks who worked in my administration, so he has access to their experience and their, their thoughts and their, uh, their counsel. So um, uh, he, he has uh, uh, access to a lot of advice that I would give if I, if I were there, because uh, a lot of his key advisors were mine. Now, in 2009, you were the first governor in America to meet with then-President Barack Obama. What was that like? It was an interesting time. Um, uh, I, I met him the first time uh, right after the 2008 election. Uh, I was vice chairman of the National Governors Association then. Um, our, our chairman, Governor Ed Rendell of, of Pennsylvania, um, called me over the Thanksgiving weekend and said uh, the new uh, president wants to meet with all the governors and I said well that's great uh, he's, the, he's the first president in 16 years who did not come from our ranks so uh, that's a welcome uh, request and uh, we ought to uh, try to accommodate it so um, uh, Governor Rendell offered to host the group in Philadelphia and we um, convened there 50 of us now I don't mean um, the governor of each state uh, among the 50 were a few governors elect and uh, a couple of territorial governors, but 50 of us came together on very short notice to meet with the president-elect and the vice president-elect. So we had uh, a great opportunity to try to break them in <laughs> right after the election. But one of the um, key issues, perhaps the key issue at the time, as you'll recall, uh, was the Great Recession. Um, we uh, were a tough economic um, strait um, uh, as a country and as individual states, and there was a, a package of tax relief that passed uh, during President Bush's final year, and the new administration and Congress were looking to uh, uh, to pass what was ultimately the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the so-called stimulus package. So in, um, um, in early February, actually it was on Groundhog's Day, um, I was headed to Washington to speak to a health care conference, and I said to my staff, well, you know, we don't have a lot of flights from Vermont to Washington, so it's not like I can fly down there for an hour and come home. We're going to be there for the day, basically. Let's see if we can set up a meeting with the intergovernmental affairs people at the White House so that we can um, develop a relationship with the new administration. So we did that, and then the night before I was flying down, my staff called and said, um, well, our, our meeting tomorrow has been elevated. The the president wants to meet with you. And I said, well, okay, hope our plane's on time. Well, it was, and and um, I uh, had a chance to chat with him um, uh, 
uh, as you indicated, the, the first governor to meet with him one-on-one in the, in the Oval Office. So we talked about the, uh, the stimulus package, the need for uh, economic recovery uh, for the states, and, and um, I, uh, I appreciated that opportunity. Um, now, looking back, uh, was there any decision or any bill you signed into law that you are particularly proud of or any achievement or accomplishment you're particularly proud of from when you were governor? Well, I can think of a couple. Um, the one for which Vermont is often cited is our health care reform efforts uh, in uh, 2006 and seven. Um, we... Um, we passed a bill that provided some additional support for Vermonters who were too wealthy, quote unquote, to be on Medicaid, but still uh, not wealthy enough to really afford uh, insurance coverage. We called it Catamount Health. Catamount is the uh, the mascot of our University of Vermont uh, sports teams, and we reduced our unemployed rate, uh, un- uninsured rate, uh, by a quarter. Um, and um, during uh, the next couple of years. We were ranked the healthiest state in America by the United Health Foundation that puts out those rankings on an annual basis. So healthcare reform was key, and um, we can talk a lot more about the specifics if you want. Secondly, um, we did pretty well uh, in coming out of the Great Recession. Uh, we made some tough decisions uh, budgetarily. We engaged um, the voluntary sector in Vermont, our charitable organizations, to help out uh, our friends and neighbors who were in need. and. Um, there was a, uh, a survey that said we were uh, the fourth best in terms of managing through the, the Great Recession among all the states, so I feel good about that. And thirdly, um, I, I'm proud uh, of the tone I set and, and how I conducted myself in the office. As I noted, I got around Vermont a lot. Um, one wag said, uh, oh, that Douglas, he'd go to the opening of an envelope. <laughs> well, yeah, I would, uh, because... When I got around Vermont, went to uh, events and uh, openings and groundbreakings, I got a sense of what was going on in our state and, and what was important to the people. And, and that was not only good, obviously, from a political standpoint, but it, it helped me do my job better to understand what, uh, what the people really wanted. Well, yeah, tell us a little bit more about uh, your health care plan, because I know in the last few years uh, on both sides, health care has become a bigger issue uh, in the political uh, landscape. Well, I was honored uh, after we passed our bill to be presented uh, an award by AARP, uh, of which I'm a life member. Someday, Nolan, you'll be a member probably. <laughs> um, um, and they said it was the most progressive health care reform measure in the country at that point. That was, of course, before the Affordable Care Act and, and other recent reforms. But uh, it, it all started uh, before I took office when in the couple of months after the election I was putting my first budget together and I could see the huge um, uh, allocation of uh, public resources to health care in a variety of different ways. Medicaid, uh, we were very generous and continue to be. Um, secondly, to pay for our public employees and retirees. Those costs were escalating rapidly. And, and thirdly, uh, em- employers were coming to me and saying, uh, that's my biggest challenge now uh, in terms of uh, the cost of operating my business. So I decided it had to be a priority. And we focused on prevention. Uh, it sounds uh, maybe uh, kind of a throwaway line, but I really believe that that's where the future 
uh, life in terms of controlling costs and improving the health outcomes of the American people. Because if we can prevent someone from entering the system in the first place, uh, then that person is not only uh, going to avoid a lot of costs, but uh, enjoy a, a greater quality of life and be a more productive uh, member of our society. So I had a lot of uh, um, ideas. I had a Fit and Healthy Kids program uh, where I challenged young people in Vermont to uh, to eat right, to get exercise, to turn off the TV. And we had a competition every year where uh, the winning schools and students got to come to the state capitol and go for a walk with the governor. <laughs> and maybe you don't think that's such a big idea, but a lot of these kids did. And, and uh, we don't have a major league uh, sports team here, but, but we do have a lot of winter Olympians. And I got some of them to come, and they're real celebrities in our state. And and rightly so, and so they, they were uh, uh, inspiring to, uh, to young people too. We, we pursued what we call a, 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 a patient-centered medical home strategy. Um, my goal was to make sure that everybody had a primary care um, practice um, with which he or she is affiliated, and uh, that means getting regular uh, checkups and screenings and, and uh, someone you can go to uh, without having to look through the yellow pages or you know, figure out where you're gonna go for your care. Um, and, and, and we've improved that. Uh, uh, and, and it cuts down the number of uh, uh, visits to the emergency department that can be so expensive. So we've um, focused on prevention, on screening for chronic disease, on getting those under control early in a person's um, uh, experience with them. And, and um, uh, I, I think we're on the right path. I, I can't tell you that uh, health care costs are declining, but... Uh, but um, the, the insured rate is quite high, and um, uh, the long-term uh, cost curve is trending in a positive direction, albeit slowly. Um, now, as governor, you had to work with a democratically controlled state uh, government. Were there any times where you were at odds with, uh, with say, the state legislature? Uh, and if so, how did you overcome uh, those odds? I think I was at odds with them uh, on a daily basis. <laughs> we had a lot of dis disagreements. Uh, it's a very liberal legislature, and uh, I, uh, I, I had to um, strategize in a couple of ways. First of all, I had to pick my fights. I had to uh, decide that um, um, minor things that uh, I really didn't like, I would hold my nose and, and allow to become law because I, I just couldn't say no to everything. I would look like a an obstructionist, so I, I had to prioritize. Um, and secondly, I remember something Ronald Reagan said when he was dealing with the Democratic Congress. He said, I'm going to take my case over the heads of the Congress to the American people. So consistent with what I mentioned earlier about getting around, I, I decided to talk directly uh, to Vermonters, to uh, organizations, to local media, and uh, get my message across without having to uh, talk only to members of the General Assembly. And I remember one year, um, I think it was during the Great Recession, uh, I had a, a strategy of, of giving speeches, um, small rallies, uh, nothing on the order of magnitude that we see for, from national candidates, but, uh, but uh, small rallies in different parts of the state uh, to rev up support for my economic uh, recovery package. And one of, uh, one of the Democratic uh, senators came to me and said, now, this isn't fair. 
you're going into every district with a Democratic senator and giving a speech. And I said, well, uh, first of all, I, I think I have the right to do that. <laughs> uh, but certainly, um, uh, if you look at the map, I think you'll find that that's the entire state. So, yeah, I'm going to keep it up. And, <laughs> and in the end, I was able to um, persuade them in some cases, or reach compromises in others. And uh, in a couple of cases, they, they overrode uh, my vetoes. But um, but I, I feel good about my stewardship overall. And and uh, even today on health care, where we cooperated on a bipartisan basis, I run into some of the legislators who were in office then, and we talk about uh, about the good work that we did and, and, um, and know that we're still very proud of it. Now, I know you've worked with the Calvin Coolidge Foundation, obviously, for those listening who don't know, uh, former President Calvin Coolidge was born in Vermont. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do with the foundation and what specifically uh, about Calvin Coolidge interests you the most. He's uh, certainly my role model of a chief executive. He was our 30th president. I'm sure our, our uh, listeners know we uh, assumed the presidency suddenly on the death of uh, President Harding in August of 1923 while he was vacationing at his uh, father's home in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. Population, I don't know, just a few. Um, and it was a time when there was no uh, telephone in, in the home and um, um, ultimately his dad swore him in uh, to the presidency in his capacity as a notary public by a, uh, by a lamplight uh, early in the morning. Um, Coolidge, I think, exemplifies what we want in a, in a leader in many respects. First of all, fiscal responsibility. Uh, he uh, uh, was once given a pair of lion cubs by the mayor of Johannesburg, South Africa, and he named them uh, Tax Reduction and Budget Bureau. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, focused. There were a lot of stories about how he ordered uh, that each federal employee be issued one pencil and one only, and that um, when that pencil was worn to the point where it was no longer usable, the employee would turn it in uh, to prove that it was fully used and then uh, be issued another. So he was a, a real budget hawk. He vetoed a, uh, a, um, uh, a veteran's bonus for World War I veterans, and a lot of his advisors said, well, that's going to that's gonna doom you in the next election. Well, it didn't. Um, Coolidge felt that uh, although we were proud of our service, men and women, uh, uh, we just couldn't afford it. So fiscal responsibility. He reduced the uh, income tax marginal rate uh, from uh, way up in the 70s down to 25%. Uh, he wanted to be sure that uh, Americans, as he put it, worked more th for themselves and less for the government. Um, he uh, was uh, an egalitarian uh, in so many ways. We, uh, we're, we're embroiled now in a national debate about uh, uh, our uh, racial history and, and race relations. Well, uh, he uh, uh, was the first president in a while not to have any known Klansmen in his administration. He integrated the uh, uh, federal workforce. Uh, he supported uh, black uh, candidates for, for Congress and for leadership in the Republican Party. Uh, he signed the Indian uh, Citizenship Act, giving uh, American Indians, Native Americans, uh, citizenship. Uh, and uh, was revered by, by the tribal uh, communities around the, the country. Um, he uh, uh, was a guy who really felt that uh, individual uh, effort ought to be rewarded, and it didn't matter uh, uh, what your race or ethnicity. 
he had a famous line about uh, uh, immigration. Um, uh, he said, um, whether our forebears came uh, three centuries ago on the Mayflower or three weeks ago in steerage, we're all in the same boat now. So he was a, uh, a guy who, who uh, I think uh, could speak a lot to some of the issues we're confronting today. And he was very bipartisan. He used to have the Democratic uh, congressional leaders over to breakfast, and he would serve them griddle cakes with Vermont maple syrup hmm. and uh, try to sweeten them up. So I, I, I think very highly of the, uh, of the guy. I, I commend to all, everyone his autobiography. It's fairly brief. <laughs> he was known as Silent Cal, after all. Uh, but there's a lot of wisdom packed into a, a small volume. The, the Coolidge Foundation was founded by his son, John Coolidge, in 1956, and um, um, does not operate um, most of the historic site in Plymouth Notch. The state of Vermont uh, owns uh, most of the real estate there. We own a little bit of it. But we partner with the state uh, to present the legacy of the president to uh, the visiting public. We are very proud of our scholarship program in particular. Uh, we uh, have awarded four full, full boat scholarships to uh, deserving young Americans uh, in each of the last several years. We hope to grow the program if we can generate the uh, financial support over time. Um, but even beyond the, the winners, uh, we have a hundred what we call Coolidge Senators, the top um, hundred finalists and semifinalists, and we give them a, a small uh, monetary award and bring them to a long weekend in our nation's capital where they can learn about the government up close. And we also have a, a uh, debate tournament uh, where high school kids can uh, participate in uh, debating issues that were of, of importance to President Coolidge. Uh, we have uh, um, uh, a program now where we're, uh, we're um, uh, archiving a lot of uh, original material about the president. Uh, we have a, a declamation uh, program where uh, students uh, recite his speeches as a way of learning about him. We have a 5K race uh, in the fall and we also have a, uh, a 1k i do not choose to run walk now the significance of that no one uh, perhaps you know is that in 1928 he famously said i do not choose to run for president <laughs> so for those of us who aren't runners uh, uh, we just do the walk <laughs> um so what uh as i mentioned at the beginning of the episode you uh, were the chair of the National Governors Association at one point from 2009 to 2010. Um, what were some of the things uh, you accomplished throughout that time? Well, that was a challenging time. Uh, I mentioned my vice chairmanship the previous year uh, when the Recovery Act passed and states were uh, working to dig out of the Great Recession. Um, and during my chairmanship, uh, the big issue was the Affordable Care Act, the so-called Obamacare bill. And frankly, um, that was quite divisive among the governors. Traditionally, the National Governors Association is a bipartisan group. Uh, we uh, um, have issues that uh, transcend party lines. We generally uh, uh, promote the state's point of view. Uh, we grumble about the federal government, no matter which party is in charge. Uh, we, we, we complain about all three branches of federal government, uh, and we're generally united on uh, issues of importance to the states. But to be honest, the Affordable Care Act uh, caused uh, 
some uh, some part of some stress within NGA, and I regret that because it, it shouldn't. Um, uh, the ACA should defer to states and then give them the flexibility that we've always enjoyed and uh, in uh, administering the Medicaid program. But, uh, but uh, it was a very stressful time for us. Uh, w- one of the uh, most offensive parts of the ACA, at least from a state's rights um, point of view, was thrown out by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was the um, mandatory um, uh, Medicaid expansion. So it became voluntary, and uh, most states have decided to uh, expand their coverage and accept uh, additional federal funds, but uh, but it's, uh, it's a state choice and responsibility. Of course, the individual mandate has been uh, neutered by the uh, court as well, and and uh, I think the law now is uh, a little more uh, uh, along the lines of what we've been accustomed to, which is a partnership between the federal and state governments uh, where the states decide uh, how much coverage they want to offer. Now, I know during your time as chair of the National Governors Association, uh, I know Republicans did gain uh, two governorships uh, in Virginia and uh, New Jersey, both states that Barack Obama had carried uh, just a year before that. Um, how involved were you in those races, and what were the what, what was campaigning like? Um, run, run me th- through that. I wasn't um, involved much at all because um, each party has its own partisan uh, organization: the Republican Governors Association, the Democratic Governors Association, and they're the ones who organize the. Uh, uh, campaign support, raise funds for Republican candidates around the country. Um, obviously, I am a Republican. I did go to uh, one event for uh, Chris Christie during his first campaign for uh, governor of uh, New Jersey. But um, because of my chairmanship of the National Bipartisan Organization, I, I did less of that than, uh, than many of my colleagues did. Um, now, what are some of the things you've worked on uh, since leaving public life? explain why. <laughs> I'm on the boards of several uh, companies, um, local and regional ones here in the in the Northeast. I'm uh, on the board of the Coolidge Foundation, as you mentioned. That takes a fair amount of time. Uh, oh, we just started a podcast, Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> I should let you know it's called The Coolidge Way, and you can uh, go on to the website of the thecoolidgefoundation.org and, uh, uh, and listen to uh, some of our podcasts. They're about issues that we're uh, important to President Coolidge uh, with a little um, uh, flavor of, of what's going on in those areas today. I'm on the board of an educational foundation uh, called the Hunt Institute that's affiliated with Duke University. Uh, we're trying to um, uh, educate uh, policymakers around the country about the importance of, uh, of public education and, and uh, um, how to um, structure um, uh, opportunities for students that will maximize their advantage uh, long term. Um, I've served uh, in local office actually um, for a number of decades in my hometown and and a local school district. Uh, Vermont, as you may know, has the tradition of town meetings where all the voters come together every year to um, pass a budget, elect officers, and make decisions for their community. Uh, it's direct democracy. Everybody's a legislator for a day. Mm-hmm. And for 33 years, I presided as what we call the moderator of, uh, of uh, the town meetings in Middlebury. I stepped down from that role, but I still am the school district moderator here. I just can't give up the gavel completely. <laughs> so, 
solos. Uh, I've kept me busy, and I also teach part-time at uh, Middlebury College, my alma mater. Um, people ask, uh, what do you teach? And I say, why well, nuclear physics, of course. Uh, well, no, all right. It's political science. Um, but that's uh, been very enjoyable to keep me in touch with these young uh, uh, up-and-coming leaders of our communities and states. Uh, it's amazing how time flies, though. Uh, the freshmen I had in class this past year were not born on 9-11. Hard to believe. Wow. Such a defining moment for uh, for many of us uh, uh, who will never forget that uh, that morning and that experience and the impact on our country. But still, it uh, gives me a chance to uh, uh, to keep in touch with, uh, with the next uh, generation. And of course, my most important duty on campus is to serve as advisor to the Republican Club. Very nice. Uh, would you ever consider running for statewide office again? W- would you rule that out? I, uh, I suppose in politics you never say never, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty close to never. Uh, I had a great, uh, great run, as you mentioned, uh, 15 times the voters of this great state uh, chose me to serve in public office. And, and before that, four times the, uh, uh, the people in uh, my uh, local um, uh, legislative district elected me to, to represent them in, in the state legislature. So I've had a great experience. Uh, I've received cumulatively more votes than any other um, person in Vermont's history uh, running for statewide office. And I, I, I think uh, there comes a time when you have to pass the baton and let others uh, have the opportunity. And, and I, I think I'm very comfortable now in, in uh, so-called retirement. Um, I also suggest that if I were to uh, entertain a, a potential run for office, I'd probably have to consult a divorce attorney. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Governor, thank you again for joining me. Uh, if you want to tell people where you can listen to your podcast um, or where people can contact you or just follow you uh, somewhere, uh, you can do that. I don't do any of the social media. Um, <laughs> that's an old story. I guess I'm just old-fashioned, Nolan. But um, at Middlebury College, my email is pretty simple, jdouglas at middlebury.edu. And uh, as I suggested earlier, if you'd like to tune in listen to the, the podcast we're doing at the Coolidge Foundation, uh, um, I think you might find those entertaining, enjoyable, and, uh, and informative, too. So coolidgefoundation.org. All right. Thank you again for joining me, sir. My pleasure. Next, I want to introduce another guest who is returning to the podcast for a special interview. Red Eagle Politics is one of the biggest political names on the Internet. With over 100,000 subscribers, many people have tuned in to see his conservative analyses and his viral predictions. Red Eagle joined me today to talk about his success. Here's the interview. All right, welcome back. Joining me today, I have Red Eagle Politics. Uh, He's a political uh, pundit on YouTube. Uh, He makes videos doing analyses of uh, certain elections, um, and he does predictions uh, about upcoming uh, elections as well. He has over 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, and he joins me today. Uh, Thank you for joining me, Red Eagle. Yeah, no problem. All right, so the first question I have here for you, uh, so 
For those who are unfamiliar uh, with uh, your channel that might be listening right now, explain to people a little bit about how, uh, you know, what the channel is about. Well, um, I started back in uh, early 2019, and it's been a lot of current events and, and political analysis, much of which does have to do with electoral politics, political strategy, talking about uh, not just exactly just analyzing you know, the political environment, which is a big part of what I do, but also the current state of the parties and the uh, problems that persist within the Republican establishment as well. Uh, that's kind of what we've been uh, touching on recently, heading up to a lot of these primaries that are going to be taking place throughout the country. I mean, we saw what happened in Texas, but uh, leading up to the midterms, there's going to be a lot of primary analysis as well as analysis about the midterm general elections themselves. So it's uh, definitely a, a busy time, to say the least. Yeah. Um, now, um, uh there are quite a few election prediction channels on YouTube, obviously. Um, you know, there's Let's Talk Elections and a few others. The difference is a lot of those channels lean left, you lean right. Uh, have you ever gotten any major backlash for being more on the right than the left? Yeah, I would say so. I'd say a lot of it has, has kind of died down uh, because a lot of people know where I stand. I mean, it's, it's you know, I do a lot of predictions but there's other videos that I do where I basically explain where I stand on particular current issues or analyze the political environment to the point where a lot of people know and understand that I wear my political leanings on my sleeve, but sometimes you still occasionally will get comments saying that this is biased or whatever, but fail to understand that prediction-wise I have a pretty good track record, and the other side's track record is not exactly so good and it's off on the other direction by a wider margin in many cases but they get to be called the you know moderate centrist arbiters of the electoral truth but those are that i call them the election mafia and i've sparred with them quite a bit but it just seems as if even that even a lot of them understand that 22 is going to be difficult for democrats so i think that that's kind of died down a little bit in the process yeah um, so what got you to starting your channel in the first place? What what was the mindset when you said, okay, this is what I want to do? Well, I just am a man with uh, some opinions, and I have a decent amount of knowledge regarding our electoral system. In fact, I didn't intend it to just solely be uh, an election channel or whatever, but the first video I did was a prediction, and it got... Uh, over a hundred thousand views in a short amount of time, and I think right now it's sitting at almost two hundred thousand. But uh, it was a very uh, basic video. It was recorded on a Mac uh, with a screen recorder app, with uh, with my phone doing the commentary out of my phone, and it was not necessarily the most professional video, but it blew up. And I did more of those videos, and definitely electoral politics has been a big cornerstone of the channel because of that, and has helped drive in a lot of viewership and uh, people like it and I'm, I'm, I'm into it. So I, I you know, I keep uh, making content and people keep watching. So now have um, any major politicians on either side noticed your channel or acknowledged you? Um, 
yes, I, I would say so. Um, I know that there's a lot of people that are running for office in 2022 that are familiar with me. Um, and I give, I have a lot of follows on, on Twitter from them and I've interacted with some of them, uh, big names. I mean, Blake Masters in Arizona, uh, he, he's aware of who I am. There's, uh, plenty of other candidates that do, um, Carrie Lake follows me. I met her in Arizona. Um, I, I've met several others, uh, uh, you know, talked on the phone with several candidates running for Congress and Senate uh, across the country. So I, I would say that there are probably around, uh, I'd say 10 or 15 that are either running for Congress or Senate that are aware of who I am. But in terms of people that are actually in Congress, I think Gosar knows that to an extent. I know he's interacted with me on Twitter. He follows me. Um, I know he does. But beyond that point, I'm not sure. Even though I will say that um, Madison Cawthorn's recent statements on Zelensky uh, were covered, you know, he almost used said verbatim what, what I said in one of my videos, which, again, that could have been a coincidence, but I know that he uh, is familiar with the American Populist Union, which I was a you know contributor of. I'm not necessarily a contributor anymore, but I was a contributor of them, and he is aware of the APU, so it's possible that, that he knows who I am too, but I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm sure there are more that do. Right. Now, when you make an election prediction, what are the, some of the things you look at when you, you know, form that prediction or form that analysis? Well, a lot of people will just look at polls, um, but I, I tend to look at trends as well and understand that certain trends are going to be very difficult uh, to defy, um, especially if the type of candidates that are being put up are, are similar to candidates that are put up in years past to represent the directions of which the parties are really beginning to move in. But um, I, I would say that trends, polls uh, are, are both important to look into past election results, certain counties and and things like that are, are important to look into seeing where the energy factor will be, uh, looking at the candidates' policies and kind of predicting how well they will play out as the election you know, process moves forward. Uh, but it's not just polls, it's also, you know, fundraising, it's it's like I said, with trends, and there's a lot of different factors that do go into it. Um, now, are there any old uh, election predictions that you look back on that you say, wow, that was really accurate? Yeah, I, I would say a, a great deal of them. I think my House predictions, I mean, I underestimated Republicans in 2020, but it was they were pretty spot on. In fact, uh, I, I I had the margin completely correct. Two, what is it, 213 to 222, like a couple months before. And, you know, I, I changed it a little bit because I, I kind of was pressured into – buying the polls even though the polls said republicans would lose seats and this this that and the other thing in terms of some of these other predictions but still i was far more accurate than everybody else same thing with the senate the senate was pretty on point i would have to say and the presidential prediction i did in 2020 was one of the most accurate by the margins um you could say by the margins it was one of the most accurate not taking anything else into account if you know what i mean but um that's that's basically it. Now, what has it been like to watch your channel grow in subscribers throughout the years? 
Well, it definitely was a very surreal to an extent just watching the rapid level of growth on the onset. You know, I started the channel in early 2019 and then it, it blew up in the late spring to like a couple thousand and then I kept making videos and it kept going and by the end of the summer we were, uh, you know, we hit 10,000 subscribers in like early September that year and it just kept going and as the election process you know i guess you would say it, it, as more uh news came out and the cycle was going on uh, and moving at a rapid rate that we saw more growth leading up to the election and it definitely was at a certain point it just became inevitable that the channel would keep growing but i mean i didn't expect to gain like 50,000 subscribers in like 40 days uh in like october and november uh, 2020, but it's been slow since. I mean, we've seen little bits of, you know, little sparks of life here and there, and I think that we're going to continue to grow ahead uh, of the midterms. Hopefully, we can get up around 150k. I know the midterms aren't necessarily as exciting as the general election cycle, but hopefully, we can continue to move forward and and keep making some good content and keep growing. But it's definitely it's been a ride for sure so far i ju actually just got my silver play button in the mail yesterday which took a long time to get here 16 months but yeah the growth is surreal yeah now i know you've said you know in this coming midterm you think that republicans will do well just how many seats do you think uh republicans could gain in the midterms regarding the house the senate the governorship you know just across the board well, I think in terms of the governorship, I mean, they are going to lose a couple because of, you know, Massachusetts and, and Maryland. Those, you know, governors are either term limited or can't or run again or they're just retiring. Um, but I think that for the governorships, you could probably see them, not, you know, pick up around on the net like four or five, it seems. Uh, obviously, with the governorships, it's a little harder to gauge because there are deep blue states that could potentially elect Republican governors just depending on uh, who the candidates are. And it just, it, it's more elastic than the Senate elections or the House elections. But I think in terms of the House, I think that the redistricting is not really going their way. But at the same time, Democrats have dummy mandered quite a few seats. It's still possible they could, they could gain around 30 or 40. I think 25 to 30 is, is probably my estimate. I'm just like in, you know, assuming that the wave is like average size, but it could it could get up there. It's probably not going to be like a ridiculous amount, but I think they'll gain they'll, they'll get a decent amount of seats in the House. I think for the Senate, I, I think they're probably going to end up with 53 or 54. I don't think that they're going to be able to really gain any more than that. Um, just because of the way that uh, the map is and the fact that states like maryland or colorado or whatever are not going to really realistically be able to flip so i think that they but at the same time i think that just the wave environment will lead them to sweep the battlegrounds kind of how democrats swept the battlegrounds besides florida in 2018 interesting um now uh are there any bold predictions you have about this upcoming midterm election as of the current moment I think that it's hard to gauge bold predictions. I think that I guess a couple of them would be I think you might see a 
Republican representative in New England that the uh, in Rhode Island's, I believe it's the second district. I mean, we could see that happen. Uh, it's also possible that Governor Seaton, like Connecticut, could flip uh, as well. I mean, it was close in 2018. I mean, those are some bold predictions. I mean, I, I could probably get into more bold predictions if we talk about margins, because, I mean, it's possible that certain states like Wisconsin could go red by a safe margin. I'm not predicting that, but it's it's possible leading up to the election that we could see, you know, more polling errors that would be very interesting to see, because if you're already having polls show Republicans winning big and there's polling errors on top of that, like there were in, you know, Virginia, there was a very minor one, but it's, in New Jersey, there was one. It's possible that things could get very interesting. Mm. Um, now, what would you, I know you've talked a lot about, um, you know, candidates you've met and candidates you've talked to. What, in your opinion, would describe the perfect Republican candidate? Well, I mean, it, it also does depend on if they're running for congress or or senate or running for governor but i think that you need people that truly get it that people that are in touch with the base but they're also uh they also can appeal to a wide variety of voters especially if they're in like a swing state uh as well and they also understand that um this is a new era i guess you would say of politics they understand how the left plays the game and how to effectively counter them instead of just abiding to the old 1980s GOP principles and thinking that that's really what's going to save this country. And I think that they need to be individuals who are able to reassess and reevaluate the way that the Republican Party has been acting in the past 50, 60 years and understand how much ground we've lost and understand how we can stop losing ground and actually be able to take some of that ground back on some issues. Now, um, obviously, there's a conflict right now with uh, Russia and the Ukraine. There have been some people that think that Joe Biden and the Democrats may benefit from that and they may get, may get gains or perform well in the midterm uh, because of the Russia-Ukraine um, uh, conflict right now. Uh, do you buy that? Um, I don't think it's going to impact the midterms that much. I think right now it is true that like Biden's approval rating has seen like a minor bump. Uh, it's not a significant bump. It's probably around uh, on the net of around like four points or so. But I mean, if Republicans are able to go out there and campaign on just this America first message, talking about the, the problems at home that we have with inflation, with our gas prices, with the border crisis and uh, put out this America first message. I think if anything, it could embolden uh, Republicans in the process, especially in a, an election where the turning out the base is of utmost priority. But uh, I'm not entirely sure what the implications are, but if they are negative at all for the Republicans, I would assume that it would be a very minor issue because a lot of Americans don't consider that their number one issue. And I think that at the end of the day, if anything, it might if they can capitalize, which is not a sure thing, but if they're able to capitalize on the, the America first energy, they'll be able to. Um, now, after, uh, you know, obviously you've talked uh, on your channel a lot about Republicans that are challenging more moderate Republicans. 
Um, you know, obviously that's been going on in 2022. Uh, former President Donald Trump has endorsed uh, many candidates in primaries against, uh, you know, Republicans that haven't voted his way. Um, how many incumbents this cycle do you think could be an actual danger of losing? Um, it's hard to gauge. A lot of the people that are going to be, or potentially would have been primaried out, are technically retiring. A lot of those impeachment 10, I think three or four of them have actually retired. And you could consider those like de facto pickups um, in and of themselves. But I think that it's possible you could see over, over a dozen lose their primaries. We already saw what happened in Texas. You had one lose their primary already we're seeing the primaries come up in nebraska it's possible that you could get two in that state alone but uh, i think it's going to come down to you know it's going to come down to the wire in some of these districts i think that republicans are probably going to be able to primary out at least i think a dozen uh sitting congressmen and that'd be a good thing now in 2022 uh after 2022 there's obviously a presidential election in 2024 um do you have any prediction as to who the republican nominee and the democratic nominee would be uh if the 2024 election were held today i still think if biden is alive in any capacity and uh it does not have any like severe health issues democrats are going to put him out there again because he's the best that they can do um and they know that even though you know the best that they could do as a president with uh a horrendous track record and a 40% approval rating at best in their own polling. Um, I think Republicans, I think it's up to Trump if he wants to run again. I think that he will run again. Uh, it seems as if every piece of evidence has hinted at the fact that he will. Uh, and beyond that point, it's unlikely that he would ever lose a primary, especially given the fact he won't get any serious challengers and his approval rating of the party is still, uh, you know, super majority of the party. So I think it's likely going to be a rematch of 2024. I mean, if Trump and Biden don't run, it's possible you could see like a DeSantis come along and run against uh, Kamala Harris or even Hillary Clinton. They might trot her out again, given the fact that, you know, she's probably more favorably viewed than Kamala Harris and she is in a lot of polling. Because Kamala is just that unlikable, but that's the way I see it. Now, um, do you think that there are, if Donald Trump chooses not to run, uh, do you think there are any potential grassroots Republicans that could try to seek the nomination and potentially do it successfully? Well, I mean, grassroots is an outsider, or um, yeah, like just... outsider, like not like you know. Not as big of a name as, let's say, a Pence or a Cruz or a DeSantis. I mean, everything, anything is possible. I mean, I think that I personally continue to believe that if Tucker Carlson ever threw his hat in the ring, he could be a formidable candidate. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like he will. It seems like he's comfortable in media and doesn't seem as if uh, he'd want to run. So I, I think DeSantis would be the successor if Trump doesn't run, uh, there are some you know pros and cons to that, but I think that he probably would be the best option of the DeSantis-Pence-Cruz 
the slate and uh, it, it's very difficult to see anyone else come along at least this cycle uh, in 2024 i mean it's possible but i can't think of anybody at the top of my head all right and one more question before i let you go what can we expect from your channel in the coming year are there any new things we can expect um, well, I mean, I'm going to try to make as, as much content that's relevant as possible. Um, it, it, like I said, it's been a slower news cycle. There's There haven't been exactly a lot of current events that have been covered on the channel. Uh, but there, there will be there will be more videos uh, leading after 2022 next year uh, leading up to 2024 that will likely uh, focus on just more current events, issues and current developments regarding uh, that that type of thing. Um, but other than that, I'm not entirely sure there's anything that's going to be super new besides just the uh, anticipated midterm coverage. All right. Uh, before you go, do you want to tell people where you can be found on social media? Yeah, on uh, YouTube, you could just look up Red Eagle Politics. Uh, you should find my channel fairly easily, 119,000, almost 120,000 subscribers. Twitter and Instagram are all at Red Eagle Patriots. Uh, and if you want to sign up for exclusive content, you could join the website at RedEaglePolitics.com at 16 cents a day. I personally believe it's well worth it. Pretty much everyone that signed up has agreed, but it's uh, pretty much it. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me. Yep, no problem. Thanks. Finally, on our 100th episode, I want to introduce former Minnesota Congressman Colin Peterson. All right, welcome back to Politics Weekly. Uh, today, we're going to be interviewing uh, former uh, Congressman uh Colin Peterson. He served uh, in the United States House of Representatives from Minnesota uh, from 1991 to 2021. Congressman, thank you uh, for joining me. Yeah, glad to be with you. Um, so the first question I had, uh, what got you to, you know, way back in 1990, uh, when you first ran for uh, Congress, uh, what, what got you to eventually deciding uh, this is what I want to do. Well, it started before that. Um, I spent 10 years in the state Senate in Minnesota. Uh, and so I was there from 77 to 87. And um, I'm also a CPA. So I was, the legislature and the Senate is a part-time job. And so I was gone from my business uh, which was doing tax returns and uh, during tax season, and it was conflicting. And so I decided, uh, you know, if I was going to stay in politics, I needed to get a full-time job in politics. And so that uh, was the primary reason I ran for Congress. Uh, you know, and I had things I wanted to do. I was uh, involved in um, agriculture and had been, you know, my whole life. And so I was interested in serving on the Ag Committee and, working on farm bills and so forth, but, um, um, you know, it was just a culmination of getting involved in politics at the state level, and I enjoyed it, and some people thought I was good at it, and so I just tried to move forward to the national stage. Now, um, 
you served for 30 years in Congress. Um, uh, how did Congress change, or did it change at all, in your opinion, uh, through uh, during the 30 years you served in Congress? Oh, yeah, there's no comparison um, <laughs> to what it was uh, when I left as compared to what it was when I started. Uh, it's a completely different um, or institution. And, and the, the people that get elected are different. And, um, you know, the social media and, and all that stuff, I think, has really changed things, cable news. Uh, so, you know, what had been kind of the standard operating procedure for for the House for, you know, long, 40, 50 years, you know, changed from... Um, to, from uh, 91 to 2021 considerably. I uh, started, kind of started in 94 when the Republicans took over and the contract with America. But, you know, it just evolved and evolved and, uh, you know, it became more partisan, more polarized until the last, the last four years were just, you know, I, I represented the most Republican district in the country that was held by a Democrat. And one of the reasons was that I represented my district, not as a partisan, but uh, I represented my district in terms of what I thought was important for them. And I didn't really worry too much about politics, uh, the partisan politics. And, and what ended up happening, especially the last four years, is that it became you had to be in one camp or the other and go to war. That just was not my my way of operating. Sure, sure. And um, on that note, um, I, I know that you uh, you did serve in a very, very heavily um, Republican district. I know from time to time um, you uh, took votes that uh, some of your other party members or a majority of your other party members didn't take. I know, uh, for example, um, when uh, President Trump during his first impeachment in 2019, I know you were one of the... Uh, I know you were one of uh, a few, only a few uh, congressmen that voted uh, against that. Um, I know there were certain parts uh, of Obamacare um, that you objected to. Um, did you ever get um, like any backlash or any flack from other uh, Democrats in Congress um, or Democrats working in Congress for voting um, for those Not things? Not really, really, because they knew where I came from. Um... And I only take good reasons for what I doing what I did. Uh, you know that impeachment. I didn't feel they had made the case, and I didn't think it was going to pass the Senate or you know be upheld in the Senate. And I thought it was a waste of time. And um, you know I didn't think Trump was perfect, but uh, but I also didn't think it was going to accomplish anything other than further divide the country, and that's what it did. Yeah. But no, I didn't get I didn't get backlash from my party. They. They were, um, according to them, they were happy to have me. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, um, another thing I want to ask, uh, uh, what accomplishments um, in your 30 years um, do you look back at with a lot of pride? Like, like, what are the things you look back at and say, wow, I'm really proud I got that done? Well, I don't know. There's so many things I don't know that I can point to one and, you know a, a lot of what i was proud of being able to do was 
things that I did to help my constituents, um, uh, figuring out kind of unique ways to deal with problems. Uh, we had a um, situation. Uh, I represent uh, the north part of my district borders Canada. And there's a big lake up there called Lake of the Woods, which is uh, huge, just over 50 miles across. And half of the lake is in Canada and half of it's in the United States. And, uh, you know, it's a big um, fishing destination. Uh, a lot of people go up there and sport fish for walleyes and huskies and other things. And they have a lot of resorters on the lake that you know, that's how they make their living is catering to, to fishermen. So there's a place on the lake called the Northwest Angle, which is up way up in the north part of the lake. And it's borders Manitoba. And it's actually uh, kind of famous because it was mentioned in the Treaty of Paris of 1789 when they were trying to define the border between Mexico, uh, Canada and the United States. And it was put into the Treaty of Paris because they did not understand where the border was and what the geography was. So, so it got put in by mistake. And if you look at the map uh, of the United States border on Canada, there's that little tip that sticks up. And that is the Northwest Angle. And it got into the United States by accident because they defined it the wrong way when they did the, the treaty. Oh, wow. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, that little uh, area up there is a hundred people that live way up there. You can't get to that area unless you drive through Canada. So you have to leave the United States, go into Canada, and then come back into the United States because to go there by land, that's the only way you can get there. Uh, the only way you can get there in staying in the United States is to go by water. Um, so anyway, so a lot of people go up there and stay in the American resorts and they fish on the Canadian side. So some years ago, the Canadian government uh, decided that uh, there was too much or the resorters on the Canadian side didn't like the competition. So they convinced their government people to limit uh, what... Um, people that stayed in American resorts to limit what they could catch in Canada. So they passed a law that said that if you stay in an American resort, you can't keep any fish if you fish in Canada. Oh my goodness. And then they said that you couldn't even catch fish in, and for shore lunch, which is a big part of what they do up there. Anyway, so it was a big dilemma. It was going to put those guys out of business and uh, we didn't know quite what to do. And, so they were going to, I was up there and they were trying to figure out uh, what to do to get attention. So they wanted wanted to lay down in front of the Canadian Pacific train that that comes into the United States for 30 miles right there at War Road. And they were going to block the train track to try to get attention to get this fixed. And so, um, you know, the, that didn't seem like the greatest idea to me. So I said, well, uh, I was at a meeting there and there was all these um, Canadians there at this meeting uh, and they're right there kind of in Canada. I said, do you guys care if you're in the United States or if you're in Canada? You know, if you're, uh, you know, whether you're actually Canadians or not? And they said, no, we don't care. I said, well, you know, why don't you secede from the union? So those hundred people up there, we put in a bill 
first time since the Civil War to have part of the United States secede from the Union. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and so that got press all over the world. You know, I got calls from all over, from Asia. Anyway, so that caught the attention of a, of a lawyer who had uh, negotiated NAFTA. And he read about this. He didn't know this had gone on. And he called me up and he said, well, what they're doing is a violation of NAFTA. And it's illegal. And so he took the case on and we sued him. And we fixed it. (laughs) And a hundred people, uh, you know, could stay in business. Oh, my. So so that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy doing. You know, uh, that little community up there has a one-room school. They have a post office that's open up two that's open two days a week. Oh my goodness! You know, you know, it's it is beautiful up there, but it is the middle of nowhere. You know, so so I I really enjoyed helping people with things that uh, seemed impossible or things that nobody else could get done. And uh, the other thing I really enjoyed was uh, working on farm bills, which is probably the most complicated piece of legislation that's passed by the Congress. It's done every five years. And uh, I did one as chairman, and I did two of them as a ranking member, and uh, was instrumental in making sure those things happened. So, you know, there's all kinds of things I did throughout my career, but um, that was some of the highlights. Wow. Um, And um, I know... uh, during your 30 years, there were uh, five men that served as president during your 30 years. Um, how often did you meet uh, the five presidents, the two Bushes, um, Obama, Clinton, and Trump? How often did you meet them uh, during your time in, uh, in Congress, and what was it like uh, getting to meet them? Well, uh, you know, the House is a huge institution, 435 people, and... Uh, the House doesn't uh, interact with um, with the president as much as the Senate does. Uh, so, uh, you know, I guess I miss the, uh, Elder Bush maybe two or three times. Uh, he was a great man. I, I really enjoyed him. Uh, I met Clinton a number of times, uh, worked with him with the Blue Dogs. Um yeah, George W. Bush, we worked with him on, through, you know, so I, I met all of them. Uh, but, you know, not, I didn't get to be buddies with them or get get to know them really well, you know. So they have a tough job. I don't know why anybody wants to be president. <laughs> well, and one thing um, I do want to ask you, um, I know back in 2020, you and Dan Lipinski uh, both asked the Supreme Court to review uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, I was wondering uh, what your opinions were about the uh, the uh, latest ruling uh, on the Dobbs v. Jackson's uh, Women's Health Organization. Uh, well, you mean the uh, striking down of Roe versus Wade? Uh, yeah, the Dobbs decision, yeah. Yeah, well, that was my position the whole time I was in Congress. I was pro-life. I voted pro-life the whole time I was there. I was pro-life when I was in the state senate. Uh, Democrats in my district were pro-life. When I first, first time I ran for Congress, 75% of the delegates to the convention that decided who got to run were pro-life mm. in the Democratic Party. You know, that's how much things have changed. Wow. 
So, you know, so that was my position. And uh, what that what the ruling does is it, it does not ban abortion. What it does is it turns it back to the states. And the states decide, you know, by state by state what the rules are. And that's what's going on now. So some states are banning abortion. Some states are encouraging it. And, uh, and I just thought that was a better way to handle it than having a cold that tried to have a national approach to it. Um, now, uh, I know you served as the chair of the House Agriculture Committee twice. What was that like? Well, uh, <laughs> it's a, you know, it, it's a, when you're in a farm bill, it's, it's, it's a very big job and it's a, it's a complicated job. Uh, but, uh, and so it, was, it could be kind of stressful. But the Ag Committee had a history of being bipartisan, and I, you know, worked hard to maintain that bipartisanship. So it was a good committee to work on because you could work with people on the other side of the aisle, and you didn't have all the partisan animosity. Uh, that also was was changing towards the end, and now, unfortunately, in the House, uh, sometimes they get into a partisan dispute, which is. Um, unfortunate but uh, it was a great committee to serve on we got a lot of good stuff done we we um, those of us that represent ag districts were proud of what we were able to do to put in place the safety net for farmers so that they can weather the ups and downs of the market and the weather and all that sort of thing um, it was uh, a real honor to be able to serve on that committee um, and obviously there are midterms coming up this year um what advice would you give to a Democrat who's currently serving in a district where maybe there are, you know, more Republicans than you'd expect for a district with a Democrat representing them? Uh, sorry, so would you repeat that? Sorry, I was calling that again. So, no, don't no worry. Um, so what would you say, obviously the midterms are coming up, what would you say to a Democrat who is in a, a red district or a district where maybe there's more Republicans than you'd expect for a district represented by Democrats or by a Democrat. I'd say good, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if there used to be able to, I mean, I had a lot of crossover vote. And that eroded in my M16 and it completely went away in 2020. I think that what they have done is they made, you know, we have out of 435 districts, we have 405 of them than our one-party districts. And so whoever has the most members in that district is going to win the election. You know? So if, if you're in a Democratic district, uh, or a Republican district is a Democrat, in this climate, I think you've got a real uphill battle. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, because I know uh, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, has been in the news lately. He's in a uh, what is considered today to be a red state. Um, and you know, I know he's, he's taken a lot of votes. He's going to have to run for reelection in two years. I didn't know if you had any like advice for somebody like him. Well, Joe Manchin has positioned himself and, you know, uh, voted the right way. I think he's going to win. Yeah. I don't think there's any way they can beat Joe Manchin, but he's in the Senate. That's a different world yeah. than the house, you know? Yeah. So they running a whole state. And, uh, you know, I was one of the original guys that started the Blue Dogs. Right. And the Blue Dogs 
created a space for us to uh, that had you know more conservative Democrats that had to kind of define ourselves away from the liberal elements of our party. That worked for all pretty much my whole career until uh, President Trump came along. And then he really polarized everything and kind of changed the climate. So, and, and also the gerrymandering that was done in the House, where they've made these districts uh, one-party districts. So it's not a, it's not even a question in the general election about who's going to win. It's in the primary, mm. and so that's where the election is. And so it's not a whether it's going to be a Democrat or Republican. It's which Democrat or which Republican in those districts. And it's just changed the whole nature of the House because of that, because of the way this operates. So the Senate's different. When you've got an ability like Kirsten Sinema, Senator Manchin have carved themselves out a niche, if you will, that, um, you know, differentiates them from the National Party. And in Manchin's case, uh, I think he's unbeatable. I think Sinema comes from a uh, state that's kind of evenly divided. And uh, she might have an uphill battle, but I think she'll probably win as well when she comes up for election. Um, and what would you, what advice uh, would you give? What what issue, if if a Democrat running for office this year asked you, what issue should I focus on? What would you tell them? Well, I would focus on the economy and... Uh, inflation you know which is killing people and uh people want an answer you know what are you going to do about gas prices what are you going to do about um you know things you know that are happening to the average family out there um so i would focus on that and i was also a fiscal conservative and i think another thing that's uh i think is a big problem for this country is that we are spending money like drunken sailors, you know, at the government level. And I think, um, you know, it'd be good to have some Democrats that cared about, uh, you know, paying the bills and, and worrying about the deficit. Unfortunately, uh, after President Trump, we now have both parties that don't, not caring about the deficit. And the amount of money that we have pumped into the economy because of the pandemic and so forth, is part of the reason we have inflation. You know, so I would, I would focus on that, and I would have my view on this is completely different than the uh, Democratic Party. So I would, that's what I would focus on. All right. Uh, well, uh, Colin Peterson, Congressman Colin Peterson, thank you again for joining me. All right. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Make sure to tune in for a new episode of Politics Weekly every Tuesday.